Our podcast with super fans Rose and Sam and Malika too. She's undecided if she even likes it. But we watch Stargate and talk about it because it's fun. We probe the wormholes, yes we do, because we have nothing better to do. So listen here. Our show. Welcome to Probing the Wormhole, a Stargate discussion podcast. I'm your host, Samantha, a super fan of Stargate, and I'm joined by Rose, also a super fan of Stargate, and Malika. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, we finally made it to season two. Woohoo! Yay! Yay! Today, we'll be discussing season two, episode one. The Serpent's Lair. So the last episode, which was the season finale of season one, ended with a shot of SG-1 looking out at Earth from the Gaul Pyramid ship. And this episode, we return to SG-1 still standing there looking out at Earth. This is when SG-1 realizes that they are going to have to blow this ship up, killing them in the process. Uh, Anil tries to say something profound, but nothing comes to mind. Do they really look like they're ready to die at this moment? O'Neill's always ready to die. He is just always not that concerned about dying. Daniel's always ready to die too. <laughs> he was the one who was like, I saved one thing of C4 to strap to my forehead. And Teal'c is like, we die free. And Carter's <laughs> like, can we have another plan, please? <laughs> Carter's the only one who's like, I have a life and I'd like to get back to it. Does she really have a life though? I think this is her life. I mean, just brainstorm a little bit. Like, I mean, Grant, I think they all agree that it's an important enough mission that, you know, if they die, it's worth it. But, you know, think a little bit outside the box. Suddenly another pyramid ship shows up and they realize it's Apophis's ship. And Apophis's ship is protected by a shield. So blowing up Corel's ship is not going to take out Apophis's ship. Uh, they have 24 hours before the C4 blows, but before they can do anything else, some Jaffa finally break down the door. So are they standing in the bridge? Apparently. Okay. Shockingly poorly protected bridge. The Jaffa throw out a stun grenade and SG-1 goes down. Teal'c wakes up in the brig and none of them can see. And O'Neill puts his hand down on Carter's face and she bites him. I love that. And he likes her attitude. I know. O'Neill takes it so well. But Daniel's like, we failed. We're going to die. And of course, Daniel gives us a little exposition about what happened in there. But for the grace of God, O'Neill tells him to relax. Just relax. Uh, and Carter says her sight is finally returning. So O'Neill, as we discussed, is always ready to die. He seems he's very cool under pressure and dire circumstances. That's his trademark thing. Maybe that's why he was chosen for such a high level mission and why he's so sought after by the military is because he's just really good in these situations. Is he just really good in these situations or is he just wanting to die all the time? They're captured. They're blind. Like, and he's like, yeah, okay, just relax. Is he really relaxed or is he just good at projecting an air of being relaxed? That one. I don't think he's relaxed. I don't think any of them are, but I think he's just, he knows, he recognizes that he has to project an aura of relaxation so that no one else will panic. Well, kids, you can't carry out the mission if everybody's running around screaming and biting people, right? 
So he has to like project calmness and get them to focus back on the mission so they could carry out the mission and finish up this blowing up this ship and saving Earth. We cut to somewhere else on the ship. The Jaffa are putting Corel's body in the sarcophagus. And we know that what that means. The sarcophagus is going to revive him, resuscitate him. So Malika, you thought he was dead last time. Maybe he's not dead. Dun, dun, dun. You know that I come from a horror background. Nobody ever dies the first time. If you are evil, you are not going to die. Same thing in sci-fi. Nobody ever dies. One of the Jaffa that's putting Corel in the sarcophagus. Uh, he's wearing a snakehead helmet and he seems a little angry. He's yelling quite a bit. And then he kills the other Jaffa, presumably because he failed Corel. His voice sounded a little familiar. Oh, did you recognize him right I away? I did, I did. You recognize him? Ray Jack, I know oh, who you are. I know his voice. I didn't recognize him when I first watched this. Too gruff, too much yelling. Uh, we return to SGC. Lieutenant Colonel Samuels is back. Do you remember him, Malika? I do. He has a very Matt Gatesy way about him that makes me think of Matt Gates, the real sniveling shithead congressman in real life from Florida. Something about him reminds me of him, is which he- I'm sorry for the actor. Is he- <laughs> Samuels, I'm sure he's a lovely person. I'm sure he is. Is, is uh, Samuels trafficking in underage children? I don't know. He's evil enough to do that, right? He's not so much evil as just like really self-interested and a coward. He was sent by Senator Kinsey, which tracks because they're both evil, but I think he's been working under Mayborn. But I don't know if Kinsey and Mayborn would be, we'll find out more later, but I don't know if they would be working together because Kinsey wants to bury the shit. He's like, fuck this earth first, bury this gate and we'll never open it again and everyone's going to leave us alone. Mayborn doesn't necessarily want to do that. He wants to like take shit from the gate and use it for Earth's benefit. So I don't know if he would want to seal the gate. So they may actually be on opposite sides. Yeah. So there's a dynamic between the three baddies that are mentioned in this episode that we don't quite understand yet. Mayborn, Kinsey, and Samuels. Yeah, those baddies. Well, Mayborn actually outranks him. I mean, Samuels has an obligation to listen to Mayborn because he's his military superior. Kinsey is a congressman, but he's not a part of the chain of command. But Samuels is very political, so he's going to try to kowtow to Kinsey. Is this the last time we see Samuels? I can't remember. Does he At some point, he kind of fades away. It may be this, this episode's the last one. So Samuels is working on a weapon, and it's a combination warhead and Naquita weapon. I think we learn a little bit more about it later on. But before that, back to the Gowl ship. It's the season premiere, so that means that we have more money, so we can use the rings. Woohoo. They, they start using it more as the series goes on. Maybe it got cheaper to do it. Or they got more money. Yeah. Uh, the snakehead comes down out of the rings and tells Apophis and the viewers what's going on. Uh, Apophis wants the snakehead to execute the prisoners. And he also wants to wait until Corel is revived before they continue the attack. That seems kind of like a dumb idea. Why would Apophis want to wait for his son before he starts the attack? Because he's grooming him and he wants him to like witness the destruction of their enemy, yada, yada. Sure. But they're just hanging out. I mean, ghouls are really arrogant. It seems like if you are waiting to attack a whole planet, you don't want to just sit there like a sitting duck waiting for them to get their shit together. But ghouls are really arrogant and they're like, oh, they're no match for us. Probably don't even know we're here. Fuck them. Okay. So we blame the cowled arrogance. So we go back to SGC. Hammond is not on board with Samuel's plan, which is not surprising. This weapon is supposed to contain a small amount of Naquita that they uh, retrieved from another world. 
And Samuels thinks that, that it's going to blow up the Gaud ships and that it will also render Earth's ships undetectable, which just seems not supported by any kind of evidence we've seen so far. First, he calls them gold busters. <laughs> I forgot that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think Samuels is like the best and brightest. Well, as we find out later, he's not the best and brightest. So, and I, so I'm sure he didn't design this. There's scientists that are working on them, but Carter isn't one of them. So obviously it's going to suck. Back to the Gaud brig. SG-1 hears someone coming. They get ready to pounce, but it turns out to be Braytac, uh, who then punches O'Neill in the nose. Braytac is just like always looking for a reason to smack O'Neill. Just... <laughs> Just for fun. I like it. I like it. He's just like, you got always got to be on. Smack. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't seem to mind all that much. No, he doesn't. And apparently Braytac has been working on this plan to uh, regain the trust of Apophis so he can save Earth. And SG-1's presence on the code ship has kind of fucked up that plan. But Braytac frees them from the brig. So last time we saw Braytac, he was beating up a turtle priest, right? Yeah. So I was just going to ask that what possible explanation could there be from what, from what he did in bloodlines to him becoming essentially first prime of Chlorel? How can that possibly have happened? Seems like if you are best friends with Tilk the traitor, that would probably go down on your permanent record. Okay, so Teal'c shows up on, on Chulak. Braytek helps him and all that get his son back. Somebody saw them together, right? And they would have said, he's working with the traitor Teal'c, right? Then he beats up the turtle priest, doesn't kill them. So when they wake up, they're going to be like, he attacked me along with the traitor Teal'c. How do you explain that, right? Your two choices are I'm working with him, which gets you executed, or he made me do it, which means you're too weak to serve in the Gould's primary guard. And not only that, but when he was beating up the turtle priests, the assumption is, is that Braytac helped them escape because when they woke up, not only did they get beat up, but the traitor and uh, the humans had escaped on Braytac's watch. So I, I don't know how you come back from that. It's not like the Googles are forgiving. The one guy fucked up some tiny thing and they shot him. They zatted him to death. So a little bit of a plot hole. If we get to see Braytac again, I'm okay with that. Plot hole, be damned. <laughs> We return to SGC. There are images of the Gaul pyramid ships on a very old looking computer monitor. Those are some pretty crisp images there. That was awesome. I put that same note. It was like a, like a high definition television on a monitor that should just be green, uh, like dot matrix kind of crap. It's military. Dill. But it's the 1990s. <laughs> be that good. It's like Pong. We should be looking at Pong. So Walter says that the pyramid ships seem, seem to be emitting some kind of light between them. I guess those are the rings that are going back and forth. Was that what it was? I was wondering what the energy burst was. I think it's something to do with SG-1. Yeah. I thought it was the shock grenade. Oh, yeah, maybe that was it. It made it like an energy pulse light that Gary Jones could see. <laughs> but it was literally, it was like towards the top of the pyramid and it was nowhere else on the ship. So they still haven't tell, told any of these other countries about this shit, right? There's like literally alien ships in orbit trying to destroy the planet and they're still trying to keep this secret. And shouldn't other countries have realized that there are ships above? I mean, they have yeah. their own technology, their own satellites, right? Yeah, at least like Russia and China and the big ones. 
<laughs> the big ones. The big ones with like a, you know, technology, advanced technology presence in the world. But I mean, that's Samuel's plan. It's to not organize it so the gold will not know that the world knows. Bad Don't plan. Plan It's a horrible plan. A really bad planner. Back on the ship, Braytac reveals his plan, which is to drive a wedge between Corel and Apophis. And this is also when SG-1 learns that Corel is going to rise again, thanks to the sarcophagus, and that Braytac is relying on the ships of Earth, those formidable crafts, our shuttles. <laughs> shuttles. So wait, this was, they still had shuttles here. When did they decommission them? Sometime in the 2000s, right? Okay. I don't see how you can like, like shuttle launches are like planned months and months in advance. I don't think they're, they're the kind of crafts that you could just get in the air really fast. Well, they probably just do away with some safety protocols. If they're not like maneuverable and they don't have weapons. <laughs> yeah. Those questions will come up at the end of this episode, I think. All right. Back to SGC. Hammond is giving a speech to some very shell-shocked people. These are the alpha mem- members, the people who will go to the alpha site. So I always thought that the alpha site came about later on in the series. Do we know anything more about this alpha site? It changes a few times. But no, they always have an alpha site sort of there as like the place you send, the first place you evacuate to. So there's like, what, 20 people in this group? And this is the first group. And then at some point they say like groups nine through 12 already. So there's a couple hundred people, mm-hmm. few hundred people that they are now shipping through the wormhole. That would seem like the end of the secret program. Because these are civilians. They're not military people. They're like top scientists, whatever. They're going to come back, obviously, because Earth doesn't get destroyed at the end of this episode. They're going to say, what the, f- I got to tell you what I just did. Right? Yeah, yeah I doubt <laughs> there was time to sign any NDAs either. Maybe they just leave them on the alpha site. <laughs> They're like, you can't come back because you didn't sign the NDA. Go easy the wormhole. They don't tell them that Earth didn't get destroyed. They just leave them there. Yeah, I don't think they explain everything to them. They probably just say this is a magical closet or they yeah. did. I mean, they said that you're going to this will take you to the other side of the galaxy right, right. and you're gonna call it home. So they know that there's other planets that Right. that we're familiar with they know they're going through like an interdimensional portal that they might not know about and they know that earth was enough in danger that they had to go but then it turned out not to be in danger so they get to come back that is the end of the secret you have like 500 scientists all over the world or even over just over the u.s like spreading this shit around maybe they just say just kidding at the end <laughs> maybe they like memory device them from men in black yeah <laughs> Throughout the series, we will learn more about what's disclosed and to who and how, but I just don't see how, given the increasing number of people that are in on the secret, how this stays a secret, right? It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, it's like a room, right? Like at some point it's a room and then people are written off like UFO conspiracy theorists, but these are not, these are like scientists, right? They're going to go back to their other scientists and there's not just one of them. There's a whole bunch of them. You know, I don't think these people got on a text chain and are like, what the fuck was that? They have beepers. Beepers, they're beeping each other. They have email at this point, right? The military did. This is 98. I mean, I had email in college in 99, so. I think these people are used to keeping a secret. This isn't like the patented, like Coca-Cola recipe. (laughs) It's like I was just on another planet. Let's just chalk this up to another plot hole. Maybe they threaten them with death. Like if you tell people you will be killed and your family will be killed. So shut the fuck up. And then they end up all traumatized and drug addicts and nobody knows why. Back to the gold ship. Corel rises from the sarcophagus and he is pissed. And now the pyramid ships start to move. 
Braytech tells SG1 that he only has three, he only has managed to get three Jaffa on his side. <laughs> yeah, his plan, like everybody's like, wait, what? <laughs> this, is, this is not as good as a, a plan as you presented at the beginning, Braytech. <laughs> So that when he freed them from the cell, the, the Jaffa that was standing in the back, that's one of the three, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> my question was that's like- 30% he's, of his <laughs> army. But they have the element of surprise. We also learned that the C4 has about 41 minutes left until it explodes. Wasn't it 24 hours the last episode? It was, so she had set it for 24 hours. When they were in the bridge and, and O'Neill's like, please tell me they're on a timer. She's like, yes, sir. How long? 24 hours. And he's like, what the fuck? How did it get down to 41 minutes, like 10 minutes later? How long were they passed out in that brig? Yeah, I was going to say. 23 hours and 40 minutes, apparently. <laughs> but then they were locked in the brig. We don't know how long they were in the brig. And Clarell had to have time. So it, like, it's almost a full day. So we go back to the SGC and Samuels orders the launch since the pyramid ships are now moving. We go back to the Gallad ship. There's no more C4. So SG-1 and Braytac will have to think of something else. But the Gallad have noticed that there are weapons coming at them from Earth. Apophis wants Corel to put up his shields, but Corel starts to hesitate to activate his shield. But finally, he does activate it and the missiles hit the shield. So did Samuels, did it ever occur to Samuels that these ships would have shields or was he relying on the Naquita to go through these shields. I think he figured that the Naquita would go through the shields. Why? Why would he assume that ships that could travel across the galaxy in like a day would not have sufficient shields to thwart one bomb that they could see coming? Well, I think that it's because he didn't watch Independence Day. <laughs> He was busy with these warheads and this plan. And so everybody is like, I think you really need to watch Independence Day. And he's like, I'll watch it once we blow up the Gawul ships. And unfortunately, he didn't know about the shields. So a few things here. The Shouldn't the president be here? Like the earth is about to explode. This is their frontline command post. The president should be there. Maybe he's on Air Force One trying to get to the gate to go to the Alpha site. So you think he's already on the Alpha site? No, I think he's in Air Force One. That's like what, four hour plane ride? They had 24 hours to get up there. Well, first you had to disentangle him from interns, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not like he's just ready. It's not like he, you're like- Let's Zip up his fly. <laughs> yeah, you're like, Hillary, uh, Chelsea, Bill, jump on the plane, it's ready. No, you have to search for him. <laughs> Hillary and Chelsea are like, we're waiting. Okay, and then so Samuel's, so it's not his, it's his plan or he's mouthing whoever he's talking to his plan. Seems like a really bad plan. Considering you don't know the, the capabilities of this adversary, you should plan for the possibility that your brilliant bomb isn't 100% going to work. Doesn't seem to be preparing for that possibility and doesn't seem like the president would be that dumb. I mean, we're not in George Bush years yet. This is still Clinton. He's not that dumb. You think you would at least consider like plan B, be on the phone with your counterparts in other countries, be like, hey, we may have some issue. I'll let you know. So the whole politics part of it just didn't make a lot of sense. And I think that's what Hammond was trying to express. He was trying to explain that there needs to be contingency. We need to tell the rest of the world. We need to all work together. And Samuel's like, no, I got this. And of course he doesn't. Yeah. Like who the fuck put this guy in charge? seems like, okay, if the president couldn't be there, he'd like the entire George Chiefs would be there. Like someone higher up than this motherfucker should be making some decisions. 
Back to the gold ship. O'Neill and company are sneaking around. They get into a zap fight with Jaffa. When O'Neill takes out a whole bunch of Jaffa, if you're trying to be incognito and sneak around the, the ship, why don't you just put on the Jaffa uniforms? I don't understand that. You've shot a whole bunch of them. With the snakeheads? Yeah. Nobody's going to know. You only need a few of them. O'Neill has just wiped out a whole bunch. And then you can walk around with your Zat gun and your staff and nobody's going to notice. Carell rings to Apophis to say that his host needs work. And then he rings back. So couldn't he have done this over the radio? Do, these, do they have radios? You know, the Gould have really advanced technology and lack very basic technology like telephones, computers, radio, email. Like everyone's still living like it's medieval times when you go to the villages and yet they're like have faster than light spaceship travel. It doesn't really make sense. They have the the sphere of television, sphere of Skype. Yes. (laughs) Maybe they intentionally keep their human slaves and Jaffa living in backward times because they don't want them to learn about stuff. Don't you need an email sometimes? Don't you need to be like, hey, I need you guys to deploy? How do you tell them that? Yeah, they don't have any kind of electronic communication. They just send a person through the Stargate to say, hey, mobilize. We need you now. These decisions do not result in instantaneous results. It's like an hour later or like a day later, it finally happens because they don't have email or text or radio. But they do have the Skype ball. Right, but you can't really take this huge beach ball-like ball with you out in the field. True. No, I'm saying from from bridge to bridge on the ships. I would think that you would want the Skype ball the entire time just to be like a fixture on the bridge. If you don't have any other way to communicate other than those disks to transport you back and forth, why wouldn't you just have it always up? We go back to SGC. Samuels wants to send a bomb through to Daniel's coordinates or to Chulak. Hammond says no, rightly so. And then Samuels wants to go to the alpha side because he thinks he's an alpha person and he is not. Yeah, he is very Billy Zane, all uh, Titanic. Like, this is my child, let me on the boat. <laughs> like, you have destroyed humanity. Your stupidity has destroyed humanity. Let me jump on the boat to get off the Titanic. Yeah, that's not how it works. And the fact that he is now like slumped in his seat and his tie is loosened <laughs> tells us that he is de- a defeated man. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is this is the last time we see him because I think it does not go well for him after this display. He's probably demoted, I would think. And and I love and Hammond is pretty dismissed. I mean, he's right. I mean, even if you're even if he wasn't a douchebag, like you're a military officer, you don't you don't get to go first to the alpha site. You stand and protect the earth until everyone else can get off. We return to the gold ship. SG one has been joined by the loyal three Jaffa. <laughs> Braytac's plan at this point, is to just saunter onto the ship or the, the bridge of the ship. And I guess, what, tell Corell that he is not his god? Is this Braytech's plan? I don't know. I don't know why he did this. I mean, I understand it felt good, but like, you're not, not done yet with your plan. Of course, Corell starts hand devising Braytech. Maybe the plan was to make Corell mad so he'd be distracted so the other people can come in and get him. 
Okay, so Braytag was a distraction because SG-1 then comes through the door with their Zat guns. Daniel has two machine guns in both hands. He's not a great shot with one gun, so this movie is why he gets shot. In the last episode, Daniel shoots with two handguns in both his hands. And this time he shoots with two machine, like AK-47s, whatever, semi-automatics in both hands. And then he gets shot and falls down and he's all bloody and he's like, leave me behind. Yeah, so Daniel's designated as the lookout, but, but the Jaffa shoot him right away and O'Neill has to leave him behind. That, that scene is pretty intense. Like, I, I love the scenes that really showcase the Daniel-O'Neill friendship, and this is just one of them. You could feel yeah. O'Neill's angst about it. Yeah, O'Neill, de- he definitely looks like someone who was leaving Daniel for dead. He gives up a little too quickly, in my opinion. <laughs> He's like, I'm not leaving you. He's like, why? You're just going to go blow up on the other ship. Oh, all right, fine. See you later. SG-1 rings over to the other ship. Teal'c takes Corel hostage in front of Apophis and they zapped the controls. Teal'c comes up with a pretty good plan. Take out the shield generator on Apophis's ship so that when the C4 goes off, it'll also bring down Apophis's ship. Okay, so they had 41 minutes left. Daniel gets mortally wounded. They ring over to the other ship. At some point they have six minutes. Yeah, as soon as they get to the other ship, it's suddenly six minutes. How the hell does Daniel drag himself to the sarcophagus, go in, get healed, come out, get to the gate within six minutes? When Chlorel needed like a full 24 hours to get healed. It was merely a flesh wound. Daniel was still alive. So what, maybe the sarcophagus takes like a minute then? And if you're dead, it'll take hours? That's pretty darn fast. Well, they said that Carell had severe injuries from when he was shot. And so it would take him longer. Daniel only had what? It was just his arm and it was a little bloody. There was nothing spurting. <laughs> the sarcophagus put a like, little Band-Aid on it and he was like, oh, good. It was like a two-minute session. And I think Carell was dead. Carell was fully dead. So I think it takes, he was dead. No, Braytac said he was severely wounded. He said that his injuries were going to take some time. He didn't say he was dead. Hmm. Six minutes seems pushing it. I wish they had done like 20. I mean, like it just felt a little bit too rushed. Yeah, this is not an episode of 24, that's for sure. Apophis berates his son, Corell for some reason. SG-1 and Braytac get to the shield generator. Braytac describes the plan and the very elaborate plan of climbing down while Neil is getting out his little grenade and just tossing it in there and there. Done. And Braytac you know, says, yeah. now we die. <laughs> well, that's a bad plan. So someone comes up with a new plan, going to the flighter bay and taking a flighter out. We return to SGC, and this is when Hammond mentions that they're going to get the shuttles ready. So apparently a shuttle does take only five minutes to get into the air. Into orbit. Into orbit, right. So also shuttles are not launched in secret, like they're launched from Cape Canaveral, right? With hundreds of people watching. There's no way to launch that in secret. And usually they're planned and people know. So the fact that they're like, oh, we have an emergency shuttle launch also is going to tip people off to something going on. I just feel like this would be the end of the secret program, but apparently it's not. Back on the Gawood ship, SG-1 and Braytac make it to the fighter bay. Tilk and Carter climb in one while O'Neill and Braytac climb in another. There are no bizarre hand movements. <laughs> I was waiting. I can't describe this movement. What am I doing? Uh, raise the roof. Roof. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no raising the roof movements. 
Meanwhile, Daniel has managed to drag himself into the sarcophagus and then he climbs out good as new. Pothis and Corel ring to the other ship. They do not look happy. So what ship is this? Where are they going? Apparently there's another ship in orbit somewhere. We will not say if Chlorella and we don't see them die. And I think a general rule of sci-fi is if you don't see someone die, they don't die. But we were convinced that Corel died. Because we saw him die. <laughs> we saw him fall down and his eyes close and his head slump over. That to me is like a dying yes. TV move. But these, when, when somebody just like is left for dead and you don't actually see them die, they're not really dead. So the ship is starting to blow up and Daniel is running to the Stargate to get there in time. We find out later that he gated to the Alpha address. So they know this Alpha address before they go on this mission. Well, he said he knew it because it was the beta site address from the last reality. And so I guess he gated there and then went back to Earth from there. But why would he do that when you don't know that it's the same, right? He could be gating to some place without a Stargate. You only have one shot and you have like three seconds to do it. Why doesn't he gate it to a place that he knows is a good place to go in this reality if all you're going to do is turn around and go back to Earth anyway? Right. Like um, like the the, the belly shirt people. Yeah, the belly shirt people, like... Rapey planet. (laughs) <laughs> one of many rapey planets an empty i'm sure they've been to empty planets with you know good stargates like it does it seem like a strange choice when you don't know that it exists and i guess the ship is close enough to earth where he would then have a home address right you can use earth it, it's almost acting like the earth stargate the fighters make it out wait is it flighters or fighters it's gliders shit I've been fighters the gliders make it out, but are damaged by the exploding pyramids. SG-1 and Braytech are floating in space, expecting to die. But Earth looks very pretty. Back to SGC, there is an incoming traveler. And it's Daniel. Woohoo. Daniel reports that SG-1 was on the ships. Back to space. And then they see the shuttles. And we don't see how they're how they're extricated from these <laughs> makes no sense at all you just pluck them out with the with the little cloth they're not like transporters is not star trek like you have to physically connect and you're in space right you have to physically connect to these shuttles extricate them without spacesuits get them into the shuttle in space uh, that seems like an hours long process not just like it was our ship. So maybe we have some kind of umbilical or something like that. The You have to connect with an alien ship. I think Tilk's statement that we die free, that's how they should have just... <laughs> Unless she wants dead and that's the end of the show. That's right. Because they're not getting on that shuttle. That is some bullshit. Yeah, I agree. I I think they could have made something more believable because the issue was they were falling out of orbit. So they could be towed further out into space, but I don't think the shuttle has that capability. My impression is that they're kind of clunky. They're not like maneuverable, like fighting machines. And so I don't know, once you're in orbit, I don't know that you can just change direction, right? I think you stay in orbit. All right, back at SGC, SG-1 comes back. Everyone's clapping. Everyone's happy. So no court-martial, I'm guessing. Oh, right. The court-martial. Because like, yeah. they completely defied orders and left and were going to be brought back for court-martial, and now they're getting an applause. So all is forgiven. When you save Earth, everything's forgiven. No questions asked, no problems. That's right. Full pardons. And Braytech meets Hammond of Texas. Braytac says goodbye and they lead him off for a few questions. Are they going to debrief him or something or interrogate him? 
he was he was fucking fine with it he's like i'm gonna go off with this random man like what bray tag would be like i'm gonna shoot all of you (laughs) let me go back to chulak oh and then daniel comes back in everyone says yay daniel's alive but do you see how O'Neill hugs him? Like he's a very huggy, face touchy kind of guy. Like he likes touching faces when he hugs. But so what was weird was when Daniel was trying to come into the gate room, they wouldn't move. There's like these random people just standing there, and Daniel's trying to get he's like yeah, them. he's like weaving around them because they needed to hide him so that they didn't see him right away. Did they intentionally do that as like a surprise? <laughs> Did O'Neill call Daniel a space monkey? Yep. Yeah, it's like his nickname for him. Yeah. I think I think he called him that in the movie. He might have. Anyway, everyone's happy. O'Neill and Carter embrace at the end, and he leaves his hand on her shoulder. He's a very touchy guy, as we've established okay. with Daniel. So for every episode, we come up with a rating. One, if it's a bad episode. Seven, if it's good. Eight, if it is stunning. So, Rose, what is your rating? I think I give this one a three. I find this episode kind of forgettable. I mean, I get it's this, it's the beginning of season two. It like wraps up the cliffhanger from season one. It's a perfectly fine action episode, which are my least favorite kinds of episodes. Other than those like few moments with uh, Daniel and O'Neill, I don't really feel like it furthers a whole lot of character development or relationship building. There's a lot of really, really gaping plot holes that they just kind of paper over and just kind of doesn't do all that much for me, but it's fine. I would give this a four. It's inoffensive. I think it wraps up what was started in the season finale for season one. So four chevrons from me. Malika, what do you think? I think it was okay. I probably give it maybe a 3.5, maybe pushing a four because it was like touchy feely, a lot of plot holes, but it was hilarious. I thought it was funny and I liked the energy from it. So three, three and a half to four. If uh, this episode were shown today or how would it be changed? I don't know if I'm right about this, but like, I just don't feel like this, like just in the nick of time thing is as prevalent today as it used to be. Like that six minutes thing really, really killed it for me. Like, I I think that would have been different. You know, some of the plot holes would have been a little bit cleaner. Yeah. Especially after 24 and that sort of revolutionary way that they made a, a TV show. I think they would be more alert as to the timing. And I think it'd be more gory. There'd be more blood and stuff. There was quite a bit of blood on Daniel's shoulder. I was surprised. I don't think it needs much changing, honestly. Other than the plot holes, I think that now they would have a consultant, hopefully, who's a scientist, who would be able to, or an astrophysicist, who'd be able to fill in some of these plot holes, other than just Carter having to do all that, as she told us at the convention. But uh, other than that, I think it kind of still works. I, I kind of liked this arc because I was getting a little bit tired of going to a new planet every episode, you know, and meeting new people. And it was getting a little stale. I still liked it because it it wasn't like Scooby-Doo where it all ends the exact same way, but I wanted something different. And so now we're in season two, we do start to get some more complicated, longer themed storylines and like threads are picked up from earlier episodes and continued that starts to happen this season. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Next time we will be reviewing episode two, season two in the line of duty. So hopefully you'll join us. Bye. Bye. Bye.
did O'Neill call Daniel a space monkey? Like us and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. Even if you don't like us, you can still like and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Probing the Wormhole, on Twitter at Probing Wormhole. Also visit us on our website, probingthewormhole.com. Thank you.